Please be seated. Our speaker tonight is Anthony Grafton. Professor Grafton teaches in the Department of History at Princeton University, where his specialty is intellectual history. Specialty, however, is probably a misleading word to use in connection with the work of Anthony Grafton. The topics that he treats might seem to be narrow and arcane, but his scholarship ranges very widely and examines the very enterprise of scholarship itself. Many of Professor Grafton's books and articles treat the transmission of and the commentary upon ancient texts in early modern Europe, especially in Germany and Italy. He will be contributing the volume on the Renaissance in the Penguin History of Europe. His latest book treats the astrological work of the Renaissance mathematician Cardano, and a forthcoming book treats the Italian artist and developer of perspective, Alberti. He has written articles on the reception of Copernican planetary theory, and he is planning a book on magic and astrology in Renaissance Germany. Professor Grafton has a book on forgeries in Western scholarship, and has devoted an entire book to the history of the footnote. Got very good reviews, by the way. Um, one of his future projects is a social and cultural history from the Renaissance to the Enlightenment, get this, of proof of proofreading and correction. I can't wait for the reviews of that one. Uh, the flavor of Anthony Grafton's work is conveyed by some titles of his articles, like Kepler as a Reader, Teacher, Text, and Pupil in the Renaissance Classroom, a case study from a Parisian college, and I really like this one, Rhetoric, Philology, and Egyptomania in the 1570s. You should read this CV, it's really enjoyable. The title of his lecture tonight is The Place of Astrology in the Classical Tradition. Please welcome Anthony Grafton. Thank you very much for this wonderful welcome. As a product of the um, poor sister of St. John's College, the University of Chicago, um, I, I have always um, had an enormous place in my mental landscape for this institution. And I've known many graduates of it and many people who have taught here. And I'm very happy that people I have taught are now very happily teaching here. But I've never actually been here. And I have to say it is quite wonderful to see so many students here on a Friday night. This exceeds the marvels I had been taught. Uh, and, and that doesn't happen very often to us students of the narrow and arcane. Now, a few years ago, The Economist magazine reported with a characteristic mixture of close observation of intriguing fact British stiff upper-lipped irony and narrow-mindedness that a stock service in Brasilia had scored enormous successes advising clients on the Brazilian stock exchange. It was named AstroCall, and what The Economist found amusing was that it derived its recommendations for stock purchases entirely from the movements of the planets. The Economist devoted an entire article, therefore, to the occult in Brazil, to occult forms of magic, local traditions of conjuring, to the lambada, to anything else that they could lump together with astrology as evidence that Brazilian culture was other, primitive, curious, that it swarmed with people so foolish that they would actually entrust their money to astrologers. Um, obviously something that the wise citizens of a Western capital like London would never do. Now, <laughs> this is of course a completely false premise. More people, to judge from the most recent survey evidence, not just in Brazil, but in these United States, 
and in the more civilized countries of Western Europe profess belief in astrology than profess belief in any organized religion. So in fact, astrology is still part and parcel of our culture. And even though it's true that only one accredited college in the Western world actually offers formal instruction in astrology, the well-named Kepler College in the state of Washington, I, I used to say when lecturing that no college offers instruction in astrology, and then I got an email from them saying, hi, we're here. <laughs> astrology is in many ways at the heart of the Western intellectual tradition. Let me just recount some of the ways. It does receive extraordinary interest from a very wide cross-section of individuals in every advanced society, Asian, European, Islamic, and other. It is extremely fashionable in wealthy and educated communities. To cite an example from around the corner from me, the former head of the American Astrological Society lives in Princeton and the row of expensive SUVs and Mercedes that parks outside his house every night is mute evidence to the way that at least one segment of the American intellectual elite is still attuned with astrology. Astrological publication is extremely healthy, from the columns, which have been a feature of mass newspapers since the 19th century, to the vast range of astrological advice literature Linda Goodman's Star Signs was for 20 years the greatest bestseller in American history, though it has unfortunately been replaced by a non-astrological rival. So astrology is part of us, part of our society, and as historians, I think, as a historian, it is part of my duty to try to deal with it. What I want to argue tonight is perhaps more controversial, and that's that astrology is actually part and parcel of what we lightly call, without necessarily reflecting too deeply, the classical tradition in Western society. That the art of predicting events on this earth, personal fates, the collective fates of nations, the largest possible transformations of human society from the motions of the planets and the stars is actually a central feature of the Western tradition, even though it is now pretty much a past one so far as organized institutions of learning are concerned. Astrology has existed in the West as long as any other intellectual discipline we still promise. It took shape, and I'll go into this in more detail in a moment, in the fifth century BC. The same basic astrological principles, the same basic astrological images, and the same basic astrological assumptions have been put into play by practitioners of the art in Mesopotamia in the 5th century BC, in Alexandria in the 2nd century AD, in Baghdad in the 9th century, in Nuremberg in the 15th, and in Munich in the uh, immediate surroundings of Adolf Hitler in the 20th. Naturally, astrology changed at every point. It's like a vast glacier of a tradition continually altering itself in basic ways, and I'll come back to some of these as well. But it did take its basic shape in the ancient world. It continually attracted the attention and absorbed the energies of some of the most original thinkers in the Western tradition, including some of the most profound and influential students of the classics. And I will just mention one, since in a way he has an integral connection with this institution. Philip Melanchthon, the creator of the humanistic gymnasium, the German secondary school of the 16th to 20th centuries with its unified classical and scientific curriculum based on Aristotelianism and classical philology, was a firm believer in astrology and introduced it into the Protestant curriculum where it rested. St. John's is about as close to a humanistic gymnasium as anything America has, and to that extent, astrology comes fairly close to here. Why don't we like to recognize the centrality of astrology over so many centuries? Let me offer three hypotheses, none of which seems to me to justify the attitude I cited at the beginning, but all of which seem to me to be pervasive. 
The first is that astrology is foreign. Astrologers, even in antiquity, called themselves Chaldeans. They called themselves Babylonians. They insisted that their art came from Mesopotamia. They ascribed enormous age to it, some claiming that it was as much as half a million years old. And they contrasted it, as Greeks later did, with the much more recent and much less profound creations of Greek philosophy and Greek thought, an attitude that we also find in Greek thinkers like Plato, who, after all, in the Timaeus and the Critias, acknowledges the superior age and stability of Egyptian tradition in order to criticize the relative lateness and superficiality of the Greeks. Particularly in the 18th and 19th centuries, when modern classical scholarship took root, in a German world which admired the ancients as models of ethnic purity, of nobility, of simplicity, which saw the classical tradition as something that could have come into existence only in Greece. As Winckelmann said, in order to create Greek art, you needed in the first place the institution, of the fundamental institution of the Greek city, the gymnasium, because otherwise you wouldn't have had the bodies that the Greek sculptors were able to portray, as well as the free competition of the sculptors to portray them at the best. There was a deep belief that everything profound came from Greece and a real disinclination either to acknowledge that important Greek ideas and disciplines had roots outside Greece or to acknowledge that other cultures contributed anything of fundamental importance to the Western tradition. These attitudes have mostly passed from the academic world. We all know that Hesiod, when he set out to write the account of the descent of the gods, was doing something that was being done in the Near East and had been being done for some centuries, applying to Greece and its pantheon a literary and historical method developed elsewhere. This is no longer a surprise. But I think that sense that astrology is Eastern and ancient has had something to do with its, with its being given less respect than other elements of the classical tradition. Secondly, astrology seems to deny one of the basic elements, as we have come to think of it, of Greek civilization. From its origins, from the Homeric world, Greek civilization has as one of its cores the notion of individual striving for excellence, the individual using his powers as far as he can, ultimately with the goal of always being superior to others. The world of the contest that you see so vividly in the Iliad and the Odyssey this seems to be radically denied by astrology, which seems to take personal fate, personal volition, personal virtue, and subject them entirely to higher impersonal powers, which are outside the control of the individual. This looks, if you accept the first view, like a very non-Greek idea. And I think that's why some of the greatest German scholars, scholars who rose above the kinds of prejudices I mentioned before, still always considered astrology something alien from fundamental Western rationality. Jakob Burckhardt, for example, the great 19th century historian of the Renaissance and of Greece, treats astrology in his book on the age of Constantine the Great, the fourth century, as the prevalence of astrology as one of the signs of the degeneration of classical culture, one of the signs of Christianity's coming into existence in a world whose basic sense of itself was already dissolving. To give another great German example from more recent times, one of the most brilliant accounts of astrology as a complete and completely determinist system was given by the social scientist Theodor Wiesengrund Adorno in a brilliant article called The Stars Drown Down to Earth, in which he argued on the basis of a newspaper astrology column, which he analyzed very closely, that astrology could function only in a society whose members saw themselves as the prey of larger outside forces, had no sense of personal volition, needed to project the powers that they felt controlled them into the heavens. 
And that's why he went to Los Angeles to study astrology. It was clear to him that only in a sub-civilized world like Southern California could astrology actually flourish, not in a land of heroic individuality like the Germany of the 1930s. And it... it <laughs> Wonderfully, Adorno says all of this in the English text, in the German preface to the original publication. He says, we did see some phenomena like this in Germany, too. But he wasn't going to admit that to the Americans. Well, I think that the notion of Greek culture, the heroic individualist notion, is an oversimplified one that we still use, but which we use in a differentiated way. And I'll try to show that astrology as actually practiced, was never so deterministic as Adorno or Burkhardt thought, never stripped the individual so radically of personality and volition as they thought. Finally, astrology is just funny. There's something about astrology that makes one smell a, a fish that's gone a little bad. Astrologers were constantly engaged in antiquity by the best evidence we have, giving advice to rulers whose personal idiosyncrasies they clearly avoided. Tiberius, for example, the dour Roman emperor, retired to Rhodes and terrified that he would never be called back to Rome, took his astrologer Throsilus to the edge of a cliff and said, Throsilus, what do you think about your future? <laughs> and Throsilus said, it doesn't look good, boss, which convinced Tiberius that Throsilus was a clever astrologer and could predict the future, as indeed it proved, for he then saw the ship coming and said, look, emperor, that's the ship calling you back, as indeed it was. And we're actually told by Suetonius, the Roman imperial biographer, that Throsilus was able to moderate some of the worst of the enormities that Tiberius carried out on the Roman people, thanks to his knowledge of the emperor's character. We always have a sense that astrology, perhaps any art that offers predictions, must have something phony about it, must at least involve an immense apparatus for explaining failures of prediction. It's a little like the economics of the ancient world. And there is something to this, yet I will try to show that major intellectuals in antiquity and major intellectuals in the classical tradition found astrology deeply rewarding. So what I want to do is, first of all, just to tell you a bit about astrology, for even in this great institution where everyone reads the Almagest, I suspect that not everybody reads Ptolemy's later book, the Tetrabiblos, which is the great treatise on astrology. And secondly, to suggest three ways in which astrology really proved an extraordinarily rich and productive discipline, both in the ancient world itself and for scholars and scientists in later centuries who found potentials in it that don't seem to have been suspected in antiquity. And that, after all, seems to me perhaps the definition of the classical, that in which the later reader, the later onlooker, can find what wasn't suspected at the time that the text or the idea was created. So astrology really has three components. The first is the set of techniques which made it possible in Mesopotamia and then in Greece to map out the stars, to map out and predict the motions of the seven planets, to predict first ecliptic syzygies and then actual eclipses once lunar parallax was understood, and which yielded a vast range of technologies for doing that. Almanacs which laid out planetary motion, tables which enabled one relatively rapidly to work out the exact lengths of the 12 signs of the zodiac when laying out a horoscope, tables which would predict eclipses and other significant celestial events for the next many years to come. Not an enormous amount of this literature survives in complete form. Astrology isn't canonical. But the astrological papyri from the Egyptian city of Oxyrhynchus, which were published wonderfully in 1999 by Alexander Jones, include thousands of documents of all these kinds, which show you astrological practice in full swing. 
Now, this is already a remarkable story. The basic methods of astrology were Mesopotamian. They came from Babylon and took their final form, as we now know, not in deep antiquity, but in the first millennium BC, in the 7th, 6th, 5th centuries. And they were translated fully into Greece. Now that we have the Oxyrhynchus papyri, we know that every single method of astronomical prediction documented for Mesopotamia can also be found in the practices of Greek astrologers, even some quite out-of-date ones. And one of the things we would really like to know is how this happened. Greeks, as you must already have learned, were not good at foreign languages. Like Americans, Greeks tended to speak Greek louder when abroad in the hope that they would be understood. <laughs> but at some point in the 4th or 3rd century BC, some Chaldean who was really a Chaldean and spoke some Greek sat down with a Greek and said, let me show you a linear zigzag function. And this was one of the most consequential conversations in the history of human culture. And it's at the heart of the astronomy that's later developed by Hipparchus and Apollonius and Ptolemy. And it's also at the heart of astrology. You didn't, of course, need to master the Almagest to do astrology. You could do practical astrology from tables without actually understanding the full details of Ptolemy's world system or the full problems of the individual planetary models. All you really needed to do was interpolate in tables, work out the positions of the planets at a given time, and by doing so provide either a natal chart the horoscope, as we call it, or geniture of a particular individual, or give advice if that individual wanted to know about the prospects for a particular investment, a particular journey, a particular marriage, that sort of thing. So astrology is a bundle of technique. Underpinning that bundle of technique were two quite different bodies of justification. On the one hand, also Chaldean in, Oregon, in origin, there was a celestial hermeneutics. The belief that the skies were really a book, as people have often said metaphorically, in which either divine beings or the universe itself spoke to humanity. Each planet could be imagined as a letter each combination of planets, say when two planets are in opposition 180 degrees from one another in the zodiac or in conjunction or at trine 120 degrees apart, could be seen as a word. And each complete horoscope as a sentence, the sentence spoken by the skies about a particular individual's fate, judging from the positions of the planets and their relation to one another and the constellations at the moment of his birth. And a Renaissance astrologer puts this doctrine very nicely, saying that you have to realize that a very small alteration in a word can make an enormous difference. Take, he says, the Latin word avidus, eager. Put a couple of different letters on it that becomes avidior, more eager. Change them again and it becomes avidissimus, really eager. Change it again, it becomes avidulus, not all that eager. In the same way, he said, as the planets move from conjunction to opposition, the words change, shifting significance radically, often with very small shifts in actual angular distance from one planet to another. Each planet had qualities. Saturn, for example, had the quality of going very slowly as the outermost of the, of the, of the planets. Each planet had, at least by tradition, a color. Mars was supposedly red, though I must say whenever I've looked at Mars with the naked eye, it hasn't, it sort of looked grayish white to me. But at any rate, Mars was thought to be red. From the qualities, one, from the vi visible qualities, one could infer the basic elemental qualities and effects of the planet. A slow planet was contemplative, cold, difficult, a fiery planet was hot, dry, burning. And by an obvious process of inference, it was possible to work out which qualities each planet had, work out which effects each of them had, and work out which effects they had when in conjunction or in opposition. 
to know, for example, that when Venus and Mars come into conjunction, Venus will always overcome Mars, her warming and wet properties being more powerful than Mars's heating and dry properties. This language was well established already in the ancient world in a series of taxonomic grids which are very fully described by Ptolemy in the Tetrabiblos. Finally, there was, of course, a cosmology, a Greek cosmology which Ptolemy describes very quickly and beautifully in the Tetrabiblos, which places a world that does not change and that moves in uniform and predictable ways outside an inner world of elements that change, that grow, that decay, that come to birth, that come to death, that inferred that that which didn't change was not only better than, but likely to be in control over that which did change, and which argued on the basis of obvious empirical evidence that if you just look outside you at the universe, it seems clear that the planets have powerful effects on fire and air, the outermost of the elements, that those effects then powerfully impact on earth and water beneath, so that it seemed not just metaphysically obvious, but also intrinsically clear that the system actually not only worked in practice, but worked in theory, was coherent, was demonstrable even a priori. And these are the basic views that you find fully developed in Ptolemy's Tetrabiblos in the middle of the second century AD, a work which, by the way, scholars in the 19th century tried to argue wasn't by Ptolemy because they found it so offensive to think that the author of the Almagest, that great manual of uh, planetary theory, could also have written a manual of astrology, though all the evidence suggests that it is in fact, absolutely genuine. Consider what a work like Ptolemy's offers. It brings together, in a single synthesis, the entire physical universe, from the stars, the fixed stars, the constellations, and the planets, to the most tiny, insignificant beings on Earth. Not just human beings, but animals, plants, worms. It fixes them in a single coherent causal system. As I'll explain, it's not a deterministic system in a rigorous sense for reasons I'll get back to, but it is a single coherent system. It links them in an infinite variety of complex ways. It draws its information from a wide range of sources. Ptolemy cites farmer's observations, Egyptian doctor's observations, practical men's observations. But the detail never obscures the magnificent clarity of the whole picture. What you have in classical astrology, I would argue, is something very much comparable to the other great synthetic disciplines which took shape in the wake of Aristotle in the Hellenistic and Imperial periods. Ptolemy's astrology very much resembles his geography, quantitative in its basis, drawing lots of qualitative information together, based on reading that you could do only in Alexandria, in all probability, where Ptolemy actually was. It's a system of extraordinary coherence and passion and ambition. And I would argue that it bears comparison really not with economics or with whatever else one might want to make fun of, but with such great achievements of Greek reason as historiography or formal rhetoric or moral philosophy. And indeed, Ptolemy is an extremely good Aristotelian, right down to liking to give you that little observation as Aristotle does, just as Aristotle will tell you about viviparous fish, which fishermen have pulled up. Ptolemy will tell you little things that have been observed by practical men. And that juxtaposition of real empirical observation and high theory is, of course, one of the great marks of Greek thought as its most systematic. Let me now suggest three ways in which this body of thought functioned. Of course, much astrology was simply practical. 
we have literally hundreds of astrological papyri which record the simple enquiries of very ordinary people. We have lots of evidence of astrologers who, in an unprincipled or principled way, offered advice to emperors, Roman, Byzantine, Persian, in the later centuries of the ancient world. So astrology is always a practice, and I won't be talking about that so much as about astrology as a system of ideas. But let me give you three ways in which astrology really did prove profoundly productive. The first is history. Now, obviously, the Greeks wrote a great deal of history, and they were extraordinarily good at it. But they weren't, I think you'll agree with me, extraordinarily precise about it. When you read Herodotus, it's not easy to follow the chronology, especially when he goes back deep into the past to give you the, the deeper causes of the war between the Greeks and the barbarians. Timekeeping tends to be either in terms of mythical events, like the return of the Heraclids or the fall of Troy, not itself more firmly dated, or in terms of the Olympic Games, which themselves then have to be dated, or simply analytic, one thing follows another. Astrology provided the first precise history of which I've been able to find any record ever attempted in the West, and a history which moved from being simply precise to being far more ambitious than that. In the middle of the first century BC, as the Roman Republic was subjected to great upheavals and tremendous debates racked Rome about what Roman tradition really was, what it really meant to be Roman, the great scholar Varro, Cicero's friend, decided that it was pressingly important to work out exactly what the history of Rome was. Rome's records had been lost when the Gauls conquered the city a few centuries after its origin. Rome had nothing but Greek and Roman annals, which were vaguer and vaguer as they moved into the first centuries of the city in the 8th and 7th centuries. So. Varro, so we're told by Censorinus in another non-canonical book, the book on the natal day written in AD 238, which I recommend to everybody, it's very entertaining. Varro decided to work out the history of Rome by counting eclipses backwards. He found an astrologer, an Etruscan astrologer named Tarutius, and he asked Tarutius, can you find eclipses and other astronomically datable events which correlate with the history of Rome. And Tarutius said, certainly, in the first place, I can work out for you exactly when this mysterious character Romulus existed. He did this by discovering that in year one of the second Olympiad, on the 23rd of Koyak, and those of you who've read your Ptolemy will recognize an Egyptian month of the 365-day Egyptian year, a solar eclipse had taken place. In other words, in 772 BC in December. Well, the foundation of Rome had to be sometime around 750 BC, so a nice eclipse in 772 BC was highly appropriate for a radical and violent character like Romulus, and Tarutius therefore said, this marks not his birth, but his conception. Um, obviously a more significant event than the birth, he found another eclipse which marked the actual founding of the city in 750, and working with Varro, he seems to have created something like a historical canon of eclipses and other celestial events which correlated with the dates of Roman history. So this is already, for the ancient world, an absolutely extraordinary enterprise. It was an astrologer who did the first historical chronology, who first tried to supply the earliest history with a rigorous armature of dates based on astronomical events. This is still the only way you can supply rigorous dates for ancient history to the present. Now, of course, they didn't simply do astrology with the idea of supplying a more accurate history. Astrology in Mesopotamia was global and national before it was local and individual. 
deep into the second millennium BC, Mesopotamian diviners watched for certain phenomena which they thought would indicate the likely fate of their king and therefore of the nation. The assumption always was, in other words, that celestial events shaped not just individual but collective fates and more powerfully the collective than the individual through the ruler or perhaps through the country as a whole. Tarushis, in looking for these eclipses, was doing exactly what he and colleagues did for their own time, in which they also interpreted eclipses in order to try to work out what was going to happen to Rome in its time of civil war. So astrological history both gave Rome a kind of firm backbone of dates of a sort that it had never existed. It also offered a rhythm for history an explanation for history, an effort to tie big historical changes to celestial events. Within the next century, another form of astrological investigation of history took shape, one which Ptolemy discusses in great detail in the second book of the Tetrabiblos. Astrologers worked out a whole system of correlations between each nation and the signs of the zodiac, the groupings or triplicities into which each three, three sets of, four sets of three signs can be made, the constellations. They worked out, in other words, a coherent plot by which they could say, this particular people are the children of a particular planet. The Jews, curiously enough, come out as the children of Mars because they are so godless and wild. Um, a view which would later change when Islamic astrologers who knew more about Jews looked at the question again, they moved the Jews to Saturn. And that is, by the way, the, the, one of the reasons that, um, one, one of the uh, strange things about astrology that you can that you can have these doctrines which last over the centuries, over the millennia, but they subtly change to reflect new appreciations of social and political information, which the original astrologers didn't have, without ever tearing the fabric of the system as a whole. In, ba in Byzantium and then in Persia, in the next few centuries, a final step was taken. Astrologers noted one basic relationship. Saturn and Jupiter come into conjunction every 20 years for the simple reason that Saturn's period is about 30 years and Jupiter's period is about 12. So every 20 years they come together. Every 260 years these meetings move from one triplicity or group of three signs of the zodiac to another. Um, sorry, every 240 years. And every 960 years, they come back again cyclically to the first triplicity or group of three signs. What you had when you put all of these doctrines together was a comprehensive scheme of astrological history. It identified the planets most significant for East Nation. It laid out a quantitative rule by which historical periods would succeed each other. And it offered information, so Abu Mashar argued in the ninth century and the Jewish philosopher Ibn Ezra in the 12th, vital to understanding all of human history. These great conjunctions of Jupiter and Saturn explained, for example, the great changes in world history because they correlated with Muhammad's, Hijra, Muhammad's leaving of Medina, they correlated with the rise of Christianity itself. They correlated with the rise of the Jewish religion before that. Astrological history offered a universal, secularized, coherent plan of history. And it's something that seems to me to be, in many ways, quite parallel to the enterprise you can see in someone like Polybius taking, in his case, the understanding of the Greek constitution, which Aristotle had developed, and arguing that that underlies the evolution of any historical state. If you want to understand Rome's evolution, you see it move from monarchy to aristocracy to polity. The astrologers, I would argue, were doing something very similar. 
in a highly articulated, extraordinarily sophisticated way, one that provided a powerful secular alternative to the providential histories which were offered by established religions in the same period. So here already you can see the intellectual ambition, the comprehensiveness of astrology, and the way in which it continually yielded new developments. Astrological history in this full sense doesn't exist in the Greek-speaking world, but all the tools needed to put it together are there. The potential is there. And later astrologers in the classical mode, Persian, Arab, Jewish, Christian, pull out the implications. Second, the astrologer in the individual. As I've indicated, it's very common nowadays, it's very common for those who haven't um, looked at how astrology worked in the classical world or in the classical tradition, to think of it as a determinist system. Astrologers themselves often deployed a determinist rhetoric when they were wooing customers. Astrologers loved to say the character and the conjunctions of the planets at the instant of birth or the instant of conception stamp the person being born as a seal stamps into hot wax, as if that one organization of the planets would shape body, temperament, spirit, and fate forever. Opponents of astrology often insisted on its absolute determinist character in order to subject it to ridicule, as St. Augustine does, for example, when he argues that the very existence of Jacob and Esau proves the implausibility of astrology. You couldn't get a hairy man and a smooth man coming out of the same womb at such a short interval if astrology were absolutely valid. Now, in fact, astrology is anything but determinist. Ptolemy begins the Tetrabiblos by explaining that astrology cannot possibly aspire to the same level of rigor as astronomy, for astrology deals with objects that have qualities, as well as with eternal mathematical laws. As he says, you don't abuse the doctor for dealing both with diseases, which are clear, coherent, definable entities, and with their very unpredictable and varying effects on individual bodies. You shouldn't abuse the astrologer for dealing with the real, the effects of the planets, and the very wildly varying qualitative effects they have on individuals. Astrologers always insist in the profession that their predictions are tentative. They always insist, as is obviously true, that planetary positions continually change, revising themselves, revising the original sentence of the planets. One thing you know about the order of the planets at the moment of your birth, year after year, is that it will never reproduce the order of the planets at your birth. It may well become more favorable. So astrologers certainly didn't leave no room for individual initiative or autonomy. In fact, I'd argue, they left a great deal of room. If you think about what Greek rationality offered, Greek philosophy offered, by way of counsel for the wise man's life, obviously the schools of Greek philosophy varied radically. But all of them tended to agree that the ordinary person was a prey to many kinds of emotion, which as he experienced them and allowed him to possess them to possess him, were unproductive and harmful. Anger, greed, lust, fear, ambition. Stoics and Epicureans could disagree on many points, but coincide in counseling individuals to train themselves, to school themselves, not to worry about the future, which was out of their control, not to spend time mourning the past, which was already out of their control, to concentrate themselves only on the moment and school themselves to live in that and do their duty and even to enjoy it. It's a wonderful counsel. Philosophy is a way of life. And as Paul Vane and Martha Nussbaum have shown, 
pretty much every ancient school of philosophy by Hellenistic times offered just that to its disciples. The astrologers also saw themselves as philosophical, but they saw themselves as philosophers willing to cut some slack to that ordinary person whom their more stately and austere rivals taught to cut out or balance on the Aristotelian scale of moderation all those emotions that roiled his character. Ptolemy says, of course we actually have lives. Of course we need to have money and goods. Of course we feel desire. And astrology helps you cope with all of these things by telling you what the future is likely to be and preparing you so when disaster comes upon you, it doesn't strike you down because you don't know that it's coming, so that good fortune doesn't pump you up. Astrology, in other words, offered a kind of individual counsel, a kind of moral counsel for the ordinary person involved in everyday life, not withdrawn from society. It did not omit or abandon morality, but it recognized that ordinary lives are not lived in the complete detachment of philosophical self-examination that many Greek philosophical schools offered. Astrology also offered ways of circumventing the malevolent influence of the planets. For example, one of the features of astrology, which became highly pronounced in the same period that Ptolemy wrote his great treatise, was the creation of amulets, which were made of materials thought to be connected to a particular planet, inscribed with shapes and words connected to that planet, which were designed to draw down on the individual a favorable influence which might otherwise miss him. The astrologer could actually provide you with direct counsel for productive action in the realm of the stars. Not only was astrology not absolutely determinist, the astrologer and his counsel could hope to manipulate the heavens themselves. More remarkable, though, I would submit, is the analysis of everyday human life which became an implicit and substantial part of astrology. For astrologers, far more explicitly, far more tolerantly, far more openly than most Greek philosophers, sought to give counsel about literally every aspect of life. They recognized, for example, that their clients and readers were sexual beings. They assumed that the influence of the planets would have a powerful impact on the sexuality of any individual. And they canvassed the range of possible sexualities that individuals might have with a vigor, an openness, and a lack of moral condemnation, which um, sounds more like the words of a politically correct university administrator at the end of the 20th century than it does like most ancient moralists. Ptolemy, for example, in Book 4, Chapter 5 of the Tetrabiblos, has a fascinating consideration of the astrology of marriage. And what he points out there is that the planets can bring about just about any possible sexual temperament. If Venus and Saturn, for example, are in conjunction in Capricorn and Libra, they can produce marriages of kin, incestual, incestuous desires. If the moon is with them, men will desire to marry their mothers, an astrological explanation of the Oedipus legend. If the sun is with them, men will desire to marry their daughters, and vice versa. Particular confirmations of the planets, Ptolemy says, can produce men who desire men, women who desire women, men who desire men and women, women who desire men and women, men who desire other men actively, men who desire other men passively, eunuchs, transvestites, and virtually any other kind of sexual being you can imagine. The astrologer shied no privacy, the astrologer was offended by no variation from normal behavior. 
the astrologer took all human possibility as his province. He certainly saw heterosexual permanent couples as the norm in human society, and he offered counsel to those who wished to attain that and were by nature liable to form other kinds of connection. But the astrologer offers an extraordinarily rich, detailed, personalized kind of therapy for which you would look for in vain in the philosopher's therapies of desire. The philosophers, I would argue, offered counsels of perfection. The astrologer offered to be the counselor of the imperfect. And one of the fascinating things that one can see, not in ancient documents, because they simply don't give us this personal level of information, but in medieval and Renaissance ones, is the extent to which those who were astrologically informed could explain to themselves and console themselves for things as problems as delicate as sexual malfunction by attributing them to the power of the stars. And here I will just for a moment mention Jalimo Cardano, on whom I've just written. Cardano was plagued for 10 years with an absolutely paralyzing case of sexual impotence from age 20 to age 30, not the time when you'd want this to happen, if there'd ever be a time when you'd want this to happen. Impotence in the 16th century was a particular um, source of phobia. It was quite widespread, and it was normally ascribed to the malevolent action of witches. This was good theological doctrine to both Protestants and Catholics, that witches had the power to make men believe that they had taken their genitals away. Um, and there's a rich body of anecdote about this, um, the most famous of which is the bewitched man who has lost his genitals and goes looking and is told to climb a tree and finds a tree full of penises, um, which a witch is hidden there. And he says, oh, okay, I'll take mine back. And he grabs the biggest one. Whereupon the person watching says, no, you can't have that one. That's the priest's, and, and takes another one. Cardano was impotent. He had many enemies. It would have been second nature to him, and he'd have found much support if he'd found a woman to blame. Not an unnatural strategy in the circumstances anyhow. Instead, he found a good astrological reason for his impotence and a good astrological termination for it, which did in fact work. After 10 years, he was able to marry and produce two children who ruined the later years of his life and brought his gray hairs in misery to the grave. In Renaissance genitures, in correspondence between Renaissance astrologers and their clients, in autobiographies of astrologers and scholars like Cardano, one can find dozens of instances where astrology offered a kind of therapy which would now be the province of the analyst or the psychological counselor, and which no other discipline in the classical world was really able to provide. Finally, perhaps most unexpected, biography. Biography and autobiography not independent genres in the ancient world. They are widely practiced, but they don't have uh, the kind of clear set of purposes that history, for example, developed as the school of morals and high conduct for great men. Biography took its tools in the ancient world chiefly from the art of rhetoric, the art of composing, in particular, a funeral oration. Biographies composed in this way, and autobiographies, tend to be teleological. They tend to take the facts of an individual life and fix them into a kind of straitjacket of direction in which pretty much everyone who rates a biography has omens surrounding his birth, feats of erudition as a child, confounds the doctors, marries interestingly, has triumphs, and then dies in a heroic or at least interesting manner. It, even the most powerful autobiography written in the ancient world, Augustine's Confessions, 
is in many ways the negative of this positive mold, a story of success turned into a story of success refused and then reinterpreted as a diversion from the real purpose and meaning of life, which, of course, would be a straight, direct flight towards salvation instead of towards worldly success. Astrology offered a very different way of thinking about the course of human life. Think about what the astrologer does. He doesn't predict what's going to happen to his client year by year. Instead, he looks at the client's concerns as they're likely to unfold in a normal life. Health, voyages, fortune, connections with friends, connections with enemies, children. He looks systematically at every aspect of the client, at his physical constitution, at his emotional temperament, at his genius. The astrologer is far more comprehensive than the doctor, it's a, than the biographer. It's a matter of professional ethics because in the nature of things, what you can call a deluxe or luxury horoscope, and they were drawn both in the ancient world and in later times, was meant to be a complete accounting of the likeliest potentials of a given individual. Finally, where the biographer saw direction, movement towards an end, Aristotelian teleology, the astrologer expected recurrent problems, problems that would recur as the movements of the planets recurred. If, like the Florentine Neoplatonist Marsilio Ficino, you knew that you were a child of Saturn, you knew that Saturn, arriving in the zodiacal sign of his exaltation, was likely to torment you. And you knew that this would happen over and over again in the course of your life. Indeed, Ficino had days when Saturn was in its retrograde arc, Ficino couldn't actually leave the house because Saturn being retrograde would push him back in the door. And as Saturn's retrograde arc is pretty long. This was not a good situation to be in. But the astrologer expected recurrent successes and recurrent failures. Two steps forward, one step back. A life much more like the life we actually recognize ourselves as leading than those heroic lives which the traditional pattern of biography called for. Well, astrology probably always offered a fascinating, rich, and mind-concentrating set of questions to ask about oneself or one's client. But in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance, it became a tool not only for asking these questions, but for giving the results literary form for writing biographies and autobiographies which accepted the concerns and the form of the geniture rather than the form of the laudation as their basic organizing principle. And just to use Cardano once again, Cardano's autobiography is a magnificently weird book. It's the second most wonderful autobiography written in the Italian Renaissance, coming close behind Benvenuto Cellini's autobiography, which is without parallel. And it's really remarkable as the work of a learned man. Cardano was one of the heroes of learning in a learned age. His books were bestsellers, not just in Italy, but in Northern Europe. He was a genuinely great mathematician, and his Ars Magna, the first systematic Latin treatise of the equations, was published by the same publisher who published Copernicus two years after Copernicus in 1545. He saw himself as a great man. He explains the myth of Narcissus, the young man who falls into the well in love with his own reflection as an allegory of the scholar who becomes so caught up reading his own books that he can find no time to read anything else. He actually, he actually invented the way we write now. Cardano says, if you want to take one of your books or short treatises and remake it, take two copies, paste them on cardboard, cut them up, and then glue them to backing. And if you like the order, then it's better. And if you don't, pull them apart and move them into another order and glue that. It's the personal computer, plus or minus a few things. 
And though he didn't actually invent a computing machine, he did invent the universal joint, which of course is still called the cadon in French and the cadangelenk in German. So he's a major figure in his society. The most respected medical man probably in Italy in the later 16th century, probably the most prominent astrologer of his time, the sort of man who was portrayed and portrayed himself with dignity as a public figure with a public face. Cardano's autobiography, which I recommend to all of you, is very different. It's the autobiography of a wacky professor. Cardano tells you that he's unable to control his voice. It goes up and down and irritates people. He's unable to prevent himself from insulting important people when he's with them. He's unable to get his servants to obey him. He's unable for 20 years to do anything about the 40 ounces of urine he has to emit every night, which does a lot to keep him from sleeping. He has his problem with sexual impotence. He is bedeviled by prodigious events, as in the occasion that he was going to leave Milan for Bologna, where he had his greatest professorship. He gets up into the carriage. He realizes that he has to go to the bathroom. He climbs down, he urinates, and he breaks his garter. And he decides he can't go to a new professorship without a garter, and he remembers that back in the old house he had some garters. So he goes back, he opens up his chest, and there under the garters are the unpublished manuscripts of all of his major works, which he still hopes to publish. And as he said, think of the insignificance and horror of human affairs. If I hadn't had to urinate, if I hadn't broken my garter, I would have lost my books, I'd have lost my professorship, I'd have had to go begging in the street. This is not the kind of story reverend professors were supposed to tell about themselves, or even in that decorous age have told about them. Cardano told everyone because, as he himself said, he was an astrologer with a deontology, a professional code of ethics, which required him to go into every detail and for which client could he go into more detail than the one he knew best himself, since, after all, he had cast his own horoscope every climacteric year of his life. Every ninth year, he would cast the horoscope again and recompute it and look at its returns and re-examine it. There are many of these astrological autobiographies. They are the frankest, the most open, the least cliched autobiographies of the 16th and 17th centuries, and biographies as well. The best English biographies of the 17th century, I would argue, are those called The Brief Lives of John Aubrey, a wonderful, quaint set of lives of just about anyone who was anyone in the middle of 17th century England. If you look at modern editions, these look like biographies but they were actually horoscopes with commentary. Aubrey intended to create an empirical astrology, just as hundreds of people had before him. And the way he did this was by casting the charts of Hook and many of his other friends and Robert Burton, and then writing up the results in little, wonderful, frank astrological biographies of those individuals. The origins of the book have been forgotten, but to read it is to be charmed, swept away, brought face to face with a lost world in all its personal vividness. Paradoxically, the stereotypical determinist art of astrology was what enabled Aubrey to carry out this extraordinary literary feat. Well, I hope I have managed to suggest that astrology resembles some of those Greek disciplines and forms of thought which we regard as the lineal ancestors of the disciplines which are still practiced in the modern world of learning, in its modes of reasoning, in its use of evidence, in its intellectual ambition, in its interrogation of itself. And I hope I've also suggested that astrology, as it reached its canonical antique form, contained within it seeds and suggestions which would continue to be developed for more than a thousand years after Ptolemy. In both those senses, it seems to me, astrology has every right to claim the term classical for itself, to claim to be and claim to be seen as 
part of the classical tradition in Western culture. One question remains, and it's perhaps appropriate to end a lecture on an art which was sometimes thought to have all the answers or claimed to have them with a question, and that is what it was that demoted astrology with breathtaking suddenness from the academic stratosphere to the 18th century equivalent of the supermarket. One of the large questions that historians of science have repeatedly posed and not been able to answer is what it was that made astrology cease in the 17th century to seem plausible to the kinds of people who had found it in these various ways and other ways intellectually productive for more than a millennium beforehand. The change is very rapid. At the beginning of the 17th century, Kepler, Galileo, many others, scientists of the first rank were intimately engaged with astrology. Even if they rejected parts of the tradition, they never rejected it as a whole. In the middle of the 17th century, the Puritan Commonwealth of mid-17th century England took vital political advice from astrological counselors as did the Holy Roman Emperor. And by the end of the 17th century, it would have been hard anywhere in Northern Europe and difficult even in Southern and Eastern Europe to find a professor anywhere who would admit that astrology deserved to be taken seriously. As fascinating and as rich and as powerful as astrology is, it seems to me that the most interesting question of all, and one which is worthy of discussion, is why, for all of these qualities, astrology ceased at one point to function, as it had for so long, and why, in the world of learning, it continues to occupy such a different position from the one that it occupied for thousands. People of my generation still learned the poem about the wonderful one-horse shay that ran for a hundred years in a day, this was actually the theology of American Calvinism, which suddenly fell apart. Um, people of your generation probably no longer memorize this non-masterwork. But whatever our generations, I think it's worth taking a minute to contemplate what could possibly have brought about the rapid demotion of an art this rich, this rooted in antiquity, this profuse in detail, this productive in protean, it is, in a way, a great intellectual tragedy. But it's also a comedy. Thank you very much.